Hello, Texans. Welcome to the podcast. Let's get into this right away with Dr. Kevin Lindsman. I interviewed him on Tuesday. He's a cardiologist with Houston Methodist who works with the Texans and various other Houston sports teams. And we talked about the DeMar Hamlin situation. Camosio Cordes, as of this interview, they have not said anything about what Hamlin has exactly suffered from. We all saw what we saw, but we talked about what was trending on Twitter, some of the plausible explanations some historical precedent with Camosio Cordis. Let's get into it. What is it? Athletes have experienced this in various sports from time to time over the years. That's correct, Mark. So Camosio Cordis is, is actually a rare phenomenon. Um, and the reason it's rare, luckily, uh, if we don't see more tra- tragedies like happened last night, uh, because a lot of, of, of athletes play contact sports. But in order for Camosio Cordis to take place, and what that means is, it's initiated by a blunt force trauma to the chest, usually by a small object. So we see it a lot in baseball uh, when a batter hits the ball and perhaps hitches the, hits the pitcher in the chest. It has to hit the chest in a certain way and also, more importantly, in a certain part of the cardiac cycle. The heart's a muscle, so it's activated electrically. And so as that electrical impulse travels down the heart, it's called a a cardiac cycle. Uh, It has to hit the heart at the right place and at the right time. So you could understand why. I mean, oftentimes we we see in football, we see it in baseball, we see it in soccer, we see it in uh, the uh, sparring sports such as boxing and jujitsu where a fist or a ball or something will hit the chest wall. Dr. Kevin Lindsman with us from Houston Methodist. Okay, tell me more about what happens upon impact. Yes, so when the heart is basically stopped, and, and, and when you when you this happened last night, the most likely rhythm he was in is a rhythm we call ventricular fibrillation, where the heart just goes into chaos. And it's sort of like, even though this is probably not a very accurate description, but it makes my point, is it's almost like the heart is seizing. And when the heart seizes, like the brain would seize, uh, the heart can't function well as a pump. And so blood flow to the brain ceases, blood flow to the vital organ ceases, and the, the athlete would collapse and be unconscious. Now, the key is getting the heart restarted because um, if we can get the heart restarted as a pump, then the likelihood of, of uh, a bad outcome is much lower. So, uh, and, th- and that kind of leads into something that I wanted to mention is that we teach our trainers here in Houston and in, in, in the NFL, NBA, uh, the uh, Major League Baseball, any of the any, in the collegiate leagues that if, a, if an athlete collapses, we really should be thinking airway, breathing, circulation. You should immediately assume the worst case scenario and run out and check those. From what I saw last night, that was done. Uh, he had CPR started very quickly because we always think of athletes as our most is the healthiest members of our society. We don't think of them dying suddenly of a cardiac event. So when that happens, sometimes it, it leads to, uh, you know, are they down? Are they, are they injured musculoskeletal injury? Or is it more of a, uh, they're just, I hate to say this being a little dramatic about a play. And so it's always tough to tell, but if they're not moving, then we need to really assume that they are seriously injured and, and do the ABCs. We call them ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. So if CPR has begun, quickly and they can be defibrillated, which means the heart would be shocked with an electrical impulse to get it back into rhythm, then survival can be very high. All right. So in critical condition, Dr. Kevin Lindsman with us, cardiologist of Houston Methodist, 
Doctor, for lack of a better way of putting it, how does one get out of critical condition? How does one improve from that state when they're in a situation like this? So critical condition would mean that he is basically in a situation where we are controlling functions, his breathing, his blood pressure. We're doing it with either medications or, and and from what I understand, he is on ventilatory assistance, which means he has a tube to help him breathe and help his, because uh, he is unconscious. Uh, usually uh, when this happens, you're unconscious for a period of days even. Uh, and basically they induce what's called a medical coma. It's, a, it's, a, it's an induced coma. What we found is when, if you look at the statistics on out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, they're very dismal. Only 1% survive. Now that's mm. across the board. That's across uh, all people, not just athletes. Now the, the the good news with this is he was in a football arena. He had uh, EMS, he had trainers, he had medical professionals attend to him immediately, which is not what happens if you're walking around the park and you, you collapse. It may be minutes, if not longer, before you're, 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 uh, you get any kind of medical assistance. So he had medical assistance very quickly. They resuscitated him, which means they got his heart rhythm, his blood pressure stable, and then they took him to the uh, the area hospital, the University of Cincinnati. At that point, we usually induce um, a medical coma, which means we make him unconscious. We don't want him awake during all these things that we're going to be doing. One of the things is called hypothermia protocol. We cool him down, and this is in order to protect his brain because once the heart stops, the organ that we worry most about after we get the heart restarted is, is how much of the brain has been injured by not getting blood flow. So one of the things we found over the years, and we do this for uh, anybody who would be in an out-of-hospital arrest, is we cool their temperature down, we paralyze them so they can't shiver, and we sedate them so they don't experience any discomfort. And we leave them that way for, for up to 48 to 72 hours. At that point, we would eventually start to rewarm him. And this is, again, what I assume they're doing there. I don't know that, but that's what I assume they'd be doing. And then at that point, we have a better chance that he will have a good neurologic recovery. Dr. Kevin Linsman with us, cardiologist from Houston Methodist. Doctor, the road back. We talked a little bit about getting out of critical condition. What about after that? What about recovery? I know there are other examples out there. Yeah, so the, the one example I'll give you that's, that's a, it's a very good one is uh, Christian Eriksson in 2021 is a soccer player. Mm-hmm. Uh, died while playing Finland. He's from Denmark. And he was resuscitated successfully, found to have a rare genetic problem called a channelopathy, which is sort of scary because it means that he just suddenly wasn't a a blow to the chest. It was just uh, that his heart went into this uh, fatal arrhythmia uh, spontaneously. Uh, So after he was resuscitated, um, he was this was discovered and that he had what's called an implantable cardio defibrillator, which is what's put in sort of like the size of a pacemaker. It's very small, and it it goes into the chest, and the leads go into the heart. Leads are like uh, wires. And what it does is it's there. If he were ever to have another event like this, it would immediately shock him back because the chances of survival in a cardiac arrest have a lot to do with how quickly we get the heart shocked and back. And so this would mean that it would be done immediately, increasing his, his, his chances of survival. As I understand, he's playing soccer again, Mm -hmm. and uh, so that's always been a little bit of a debate in the United States is that, and I've been involved with some of this, is 
that you really want to allow somebody with a defibrillator to play uh, competitive sports. One, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to play contact sports if he if, if you have a defibrillator because of the chances the defibrillator would be damaged or your wires could be pulled back. But uh, we've we've had it where basketball players were interested in, in playing, and there's a big debate on whether that's a good idea or not. Uh, biggest worry is inappropriate shocks. In other words, will the device think that you're in this arrhythmia while you're really just exercising and it could shock the heart and do damage. So um, now with, with Mr. Hamlin, if, if this truly was commotio cordis and not some sort of genetic predisposition for him having an arrhythmia, then he could play again if he recovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is some sort of a random event and you can't be screened for, it can't be prevented. It's just a random event. But to some, uh, but I'm sure they will want to do further workup. Dr. Kevin Linsman with us from Houston Methodist, works with the Texans and various other Houston sports teams. Doctor, just to summarize here, you mentioned it. Someone in DeMar Hamlin's situation, you get excellent care. Obviously, it increases the chances of recovery, of success. But you said could take days. You never know what the timetable is. It's really hard to put any kind of timetable on it. It could. It could. And having seen this uh, for other causes, if you look at uh, the most common cause is, is coronary artery disease and heart attacks. So we do get patients who get put in this critical condition, medically induced coma, and it can take days. It can take weeks. Uh, it, the, the, it's just hard, difficult to tell. What we do and we know is to stabilize them, control, uh, keep their blood pressure up, make sure their lungs are oxygenating. Also make sure other organs aren't damaged by this event, such as the liver and the kidneys. If all, the thing that's going to be on Mr. Hamlin's side is he's very young and a very fit athlete. So that really does uh, favor uh, him uh, recovering from this. But we just won't know for a few days and, and how long the brain was without blood flow. Uh, even if the heart were still in that arrhythmia, as long as he's getting good CPR, uh, I've seen people uh, live even 30 or 40 minutes after you know CPR was begun. So... Mm. Um, it's it just we just don't know until that's that's the most difficult time uh, for I'm sure uh, his teammates and his family is the wait uh, because I always tell families I said this is the toughest part it's not the initial event it's the wait and you know is he going to wake up is he going to recover there's Dr. Kevin Lindsman with Houston Methodist cardiologist now if you missed it on Tuesday's show we had a Tuesday morning visit with general manager Nick Casario and of course the subject of DeMar Hamlin came up really puts I'd say everything in perspective uh things a lot more important than football when something like that takes place I mean certainly our condolences, thoughts, and prayers are with the Bills organization, the players, the staff, the Hamlin family, University of Pittsburgh. A lot of players are going to be affected throughout the course of the league on uh, other teams, the Buffalo team, Cincinnati team, our team, uh, teammates um, that along the way uh, cross paths with, with DeMar. So um, to, to, it's hard to put into words something like this. It's sort of mind-numbing. It's a little bit chilling. Um, but you're just hoping for the best, and the only thing that we can all do is pray and support, and then hopefully he's in great hands and he receives the medical support that he needs and that ultimately he he can make the recovery that he needs to just continue to lead a good life. Mm-hmm. And obviously that becomes more important. And, Nick, last night as we were watching the game, I was trying to think of you know something that's happened you know across the league or just in, in one game that – 
really kind of shook us all the foundation. And the only thing I really could come up with was, you know, 9-11. And you were with the Patriots at that point. Um, and you guys had already had a tragedy losing a coach prior to that. And then you had 9-11, which actually the planes um, left from Boston. What was is there any sort of analogous situation to that? I mean, obviously, that's a national tragedy. This obviously is in a different way. But just the, the having to deal with that sort of situation as a team. Yeah, I think any experience like that is fairly traumatic. And really what you do, you take it away from football. You, sp you don't spend the time on football. You spend time on life. You spend time on people. Yeah. And you spend time on things that, quite frankly, matter a little bit more than the task at hand. The league did as, as well as they could under the circumstances Monday evening. Uh, the, the clubs looked like they handled it the best they could. I don't think any of us have seen, uh, been around something like this in, in sport. I certainly have in you know, my 20 some years in the league. The only thing that potentially could come close to something like this is going back to what happened with Loyola Marymount and Hank Gathers, yeah. you yeah. know, in a situation yeah. like that. So you, you can't even imagine anything like that taking place and just the, the trauma that it causes. And you saw the pain, the anguish on the faces of a lot of players. And it, it's, it's emotions are involved because you're talking about someone's life. And in the end, this game, this sport, it's about people, and people matter most more than anything else. Nick, as we're recording this, I mean, everything's happening in real time. Hamlin is in critical condition, yet everybody in the league is observing, praying, hoping for the very best, and the business of the sport goes on in a way. So what can you tell us about that part of it? Because people have games to get ready for, yet you have this sort of hanging over your head. Sure, I think you have to be sensitive to everything that's involved. Let's say each team is probably going to handle it a little bit differently, whatever they feel is in their best interest. Um, at some point, if we get further direction from the league, then we'll adjust accordingly. Um, one of the things that we've done or are going to do is certain players are normally in on Tuesday, and we're going to give the players the day off so they can focus on handling this situation however they feel most appropriate, mm -hmm. provide resources, not only players, coaches, staff, you're, ne you're never really sure how they're going to be materially affected or impacted. So all we can do is provide resources, provide support, and provide an outlet for people so that they have an opportunity to potentially grieve or handle it however they see fit. Nick, one of the things that stood out to me um, in watching it last night was how quickly the medical response happened. Um, and I remember having been a head coach a long time ago at, at high school level, I mean, a young guy, I mean, there were so many things that were always flying around. I remember my athletic director always saying, make sure the ambulance take care of, make sure the ambulance is taken care of. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, got it. And it was like, I remembered those conversations vividly as I watched that last night. But the medical response, the teams, you know, our medical response um, on things that have happened over the years, how important is did that become last night that they were able to react as quickly as they did and be there with the right resources on the field? Sure, it was was critical. I think we're blessed and fortunate to have the best, the smartest, uh, the most equipped medical professionals, doctors um, throughout the course of the United States. I think in the case last night with the game being in Cincinnati, um, with the hospital being as close as it was yeah. to the facility, um, that could potentially have made a difference. We'll, we'll know more here as we find out, but we're blessed in the city of Houston to have some of the best medical care as well. But the health and safety and the well-being of the players is paramount, yeah. and it's first and foremost more important than anything else. So whatever you can do as a team and a club to provide those resources, that's what you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis 
not knowing when something like this could potentially happen. Right. But I think we're all very fortunate for the medical professionals um, throughout the course, throughout the nation, throughout the country, specifically in Cincinnati last night. And we're very fortunate to have the care that we have here in Houston, some of the best really in the world. Nick, during a game, obviously there, there are a ton of medical personnel around. But even in the building here during the week, we have paramedics, doctors, the athletic trainers. They know a lot to begin with. And I think there's a paramedic office near the loading dock. What can you share with us about that, about the kind of focus there is on medical attention if needed or whatever the case may be? It's mass massive, and it goes back to the health and safety of, of the players and doing whatever we can to provide them necessary treatment. Anytime you have an injury, there's medical professionals that are the experts in their field, so we rely on them for their expertise, for their information, for their care. Um, and, I, again, you can't really prepare for a situation like this, but what you want to make sure that you have are the resources available for the players to comfort the players anytime you're going through a pretty traumatic experience their well-being is really the most important thing so having access to those people to those resources sort of right around the corner it makes a big difference and hopefully it puts people at ease understanding that they have that available to them nick one of the aspects of this that i'm i mean when you said hank gathers i just i mean mm. i got a lump in my throat thinking about it because he was he was my favorite college basketball player growing up i used to watch those teams so Thinking about that aspect, I mean, I don't play the game anymore. I'm around and around these guys, but these guys play the game. How, I don't know the right way of asking this, but what's the most important thing as far as players and whether it's reassuring them or just trying to get them back on the field to play a violent sport that we all talk about, you know, that, you know, we mentioned it, we're talking about defense. You've got to be football violent, but it is a violent sport. And there they saw it last night really come to fruition. How difficult a task is that? And, what are the resources kind of available for the players to kind of talk through a situation like that, Nick? Yeah, I mean, what you have to, you can't put yourself in their shoes because we're not, what they do, they're elite players, they're elite athletes, and right. to be able to go out there and perform at an elite level, um, there's still a human aspect that's involved. So how they feel, what's their mindset, what can we do to help them? Um, I mean, I give a tremendous amount of happened to be watching some of the coverage last night and I thought the way that Ryan Clark sort of articulated yeah. what was happening from a player's perspective and how eloquent it was under trying circumstances I thought was absolutely incredible and it kind of puts in perspective from a player's view these are the things that they're thinking that they have to go through and I think as a team and as a staff you have to be cognizant of some of those things that a player might be going through and you just have to provide a sounding board you have to have a certain degree of empathy, and you just have to be able to provide them sort of a sounding board where they can go. And if they don't, if they feel a certain way, you have to understand that and do the best you can to modify and adjust accordingly. So, it's there's no playbook for something like this. You just have to listen. You have to open your mind. You got to open your heart, and you have to be willing to, I would say, understand and embrace the perspective of the player and what they may be dealing with and how that affects them potentially moving forward as it pertains to, to going on the field. As we're all praying for Hamlin's recovery, Nick, in the league there's a domino effect that can happen schedule-wise and all of that, and everybody's thinking about it. It's Tuesday, and here's Week 18 coming up. And I know the Texans aren't directly involved, but you never know what happens with scheduling and things like that. How does that stuff go down? The league office is obviously going to decide these things, but they have to get input from teams, and teams have to get input from players, correct? 
Yeah, the, the league, I would say, in these particular situations, they're very thoughtful, I would say, about how they approach it. So they have to take all the variables into the equation, and ultimately they'll do what they feel is in the best interest of everybody involved. So from a club perspective, that's all we can do is sort of lean on the league um, for their, I would say, guidance. Um, and ultimately, whatever decision is made, you just have to be prepared to adjust and handle accordingly. So whatever it is. So they have a, a tough job. Uh, the league does a great job, I would say, of communicating and messaging about how things will proceed moving forward on a much, I would say, smaller, smaller scale. Mm -hmm. What we went through in Tennessee, there was some communication and dialogue back and forth, and then ultimately the decision that was made. So I think first and foremost, you're thinking about the individual and the people and the player, and I would say in this case the Buffalo Bills, Anything beyond that, I think, over the course of the uh, of the day um, and time, we'll get a little more guidance and direction. And whatever the league decides, then you know we'll adjust and handle accordingly. Nick, obviously, this is there's no way to transition to something smoothly, and so I will try and bridge them if I can. But I was thinking about this the other day, amongst you know general managers in the league. You guys obviously are the only people that know that job in particular. How much communication do you have kind of throughout the league just talking about whether it's matters like this or whether it's a scheduling thing or whether it's – how often do you communicate with general managers or people of that ilk throughout the league? It's, it's a good question. It probably varies depending on the time of the year. I'd say when you have – during the off season and you have opportunities to get together with other people throughout the league, whether it's the combine, whether it's the all-star games – you may have some dialogue and discussion with some people that you have some familiarity with about, I would say, scheduling, practicing, practice ideas, drills, things of that nature. I'd say in season, there probably isn't as much dialogue, um, but maybe you reach out to somebody about that they've practiced a certain way or yeah. you have crossover with, or, hey, what about this? What have you done in this particular situation? So it's probably case by case. So I would say it's probably done more in the off season where you have a little bit more crossover but as far as in season goes each team operates a certain way how they put together the schedule how they practice how they meet um, what to do i would say in any emergency situation or what resources do they have available and then if there's something there that makes sense that you can incorporate into your program then you certainly consider i think everybody is kind of looking for best practices yep. what can we do to improve what can we do to make strides in certain areas um, so to your question, John, it, it does happen. Yeah. It probably happens at different points of the year on a larger scale. Well, players due to get back in on Wednesday, and you've got a game to get ready for after that with the Indianapolis Colts. It's the final game of the season, Nick. What kinds of things are you looking for after what happened against Jacksonville as we allow ourselves to talk about the game a little bit here and see how it goes? Yeah, it's been a while since we've played the Colts, so going back to week one. So they've changed from where they started the season to where they are now. Um, I'd say from a big-picture perspective, there's still some core things that uh, I would say have remained the same. Um, so we've changed as well. So you kind of have to look at what happened earlier in the year, kind of have an understanding, and then really look at the last however many weeks of games that the opponent has played and try to get an idea of where they are as a team. So. Um, like I said, they've undergone some change on a larger scale from you know, Coach Reich to going to Coach Saturday. Um, they've had a, a number of changes that they've made personnel-wise in the mm -hmm. player front. So you still have to go through and kind of go through your process and prepare uh, for the opponent and prepare for what you're going to see both uh, personnel-wise and then schematically as well. So 
Um, I'd say as a team, they still have a lot of really good players um, who have played really good football, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Um, mm -hmm. So they're in you know, top, I don't know, 10 in most categories defensively. So they've, they've played well on defense. Um, they've had a lot of injuries that have affected the, probably what's going on offensively. Um, they've kind of had three different quarterbacks that have played. So it looks like, you know, Sam's going to play this weekend. Um, Nick played last week and Matt has played throughout the course of the year. So started the individual players, look at what they're doing from a schematic standpoint and how they're incorporating, I would say, maybe some of the newer players. But there definitely have been some constants and some consistent players. We talked about defensively. I mean, offensively, I mean, Pittman's been a pretty constant, uh, pretty big constant from the beginning. So he's probably been one of their best players. And for the most part, the offensive line has remained intact. They've had some changes at left tackle. Um, losing Jonathan, you know, has hurt them a little bit. Um, and the quarterback situation, they've kind of had multiple guys in there. So kind of look at their team, look at where they are, look at how they're playing. Um, the week one is a little bit of a reference point, but we're 17, however many weeks removed. So it's a little bit of a different team. Nick, we've seen this a few times this year, in particular in the division with, with Tennessee, kind of both times where Ryan Tannehill was not practicing and, well, are we going to see Malik? Coach Saturday came straight out the other day and said, no, Sam Ellinger is going to be the quarterback. I guess this question turns into trust. Do you, do you trust that as you prepare for them? Like, okay, how much do you – because Sam and Nick are two different quarterbacks because Sam can be mobile, but – how do you kind of address that with the fact that, okay, he said Sam's going to start. We trust it. Do we prepare for a Nick just in case? How do you kind of go about that situation when you're not 100% sure, but he said it, so maybe it's going to happen, probably going to happen? Yeah, you have to prepare for everybody. So everybody that's on the team, that's on the active roster, you have to prepare for. There might be some players on the practice squad who have been elevated, so you have to kind of look at where they are, maybe from an injury standpoint, who's available. So just offensively, there's certain things that Sam does maybe better than Nick does. So what they do with Sam in those particular situations, how you want to defend those plays, how you want to handle those plays, you certainly have to be ready for those. So, um, and the running backs, I mean, really, it's sort of turned over to some degree. They traded Naheem um, Hines, Jonathan's on IR. So then they have, let's say, three backs that weren't even either on the team or hadn't played that much. Yeah. So. I think understanding the personnel, understanding that player's strengths, understanding their weaknesses, understanding how they've used the player within the scheme of what they're doing offensively, change the play caller. So all those things you have to factor in. Um, do you trust the information? All you can do is prepare for the team and prepare for the players and just have an understanding of when that player's in the game, some of the things that he does well, and they might try to cater some things that accentuate what that player does well. How important is it you have one opportunity here to bounce back from the performance against Jacksonville for all the individuals involved and collectively as well? How important is that? Yeah, I think the big thing is just want to try to go out there and play good football, try to play good, consistent football, try to do things that um, are required to win uh, this particular week. So once we identify you know, what we have to do on each side of the ball, offensively, defensively, in the kicking game, then go out there and try to execute those things at a good level. So. Um, I think everybody's disappointed about what happened against Jacksonville. We didn't play very well, um, but now we have to turn the page like we do every week and get ready for the next opponent and the next challenge in front of us, which are the Colts and some of the, the problems that they present. So I think I'm contractually obligated to ask you about rookies, but I'm going to ask you about future rookies, and that being Shrine Bowl, Senior Bowl, those kind of things. I would imagine, Nick, you, you've already 
talked about being prepared for that, but we're getting ever so close to those opportunities where you get a chance to see these players up close. How much more preparation goes in from from your angle to kind of get up to speed of who you're going to see at those traditional All-Star games? Yeah, once the season is over, you kind of shift to sort of team-building mode. Um, we've gone through kind of an initial round of meetings here in December, um, identifying some of the needs and some of the different traits and characteristics that we need to maybe dig a little deeper on and study a little bit more, not necessarily on the field, but maybe some of the things from a football character background standpoint. Um, the All-Star Games are going to start to kick into gear here, actually, even next week. Some yeah. of the, I would say, uh, other All-Star Games yeah. that are a part of it, uh, PA, CGS, I mean, there's a number of things. And then at the end of the month in January, you have the East-West, and that'll transition into the Senior Bowl. So essentially just kind of shift gears here a little bit and start the team building aspect of the off season. So, um, you know, we'll devote a lot of time and resources to that endeavor. Um, the underclassmen will factor in here as well. I think there's been about 55, 60 players that have officially come out and declared, make themselves eligible for the draft. They have up until I want to say the 16th or 17th, the officially declare. So once the bowl games are finished up here, may see a few more declarations, so a few more players going to the pool. There's some players that are either going to go back or have said they're going to they're in the transfer portal. So you may have thought that player was going to come out. You may have done some work during the fall, and now they're going to go back to school. No problem. All right, put them to bed here for a little bit, and let's focus on the group here that are going to make themselves available for the draft here in April. All right, the unofficial official AFC championship game is – AFC South championship game. I got to be clear on that. Is Saturday night Jacksonville hosting Tennessee? What do you think of the matchup? Yeah, I mean it's probably the two best teams in the division. You know, playing for the for the division championship. So, um, kind of look at the arc of those two teams. Um, it's kind of been a tale of two seasons for mm -hmm. both teams. So Tennessee started well, kind of had a rough patch here, but they still have an opportunity. And then Jacksonville kind of started slowly. And now they've won. I don't know, it's four or five games in a row. And they put themselves in a position to play for a championship. So really, that's real, all you're trying to do as a team and as an organization to put yourself in a position to give yourself an opportunity to extend the season. So I think it'll be a, two, a good matchup, two uh, two good teams, two well-coached teams, and the team that plays the best, the teams that makes the least amount of mistakes, the teams that executes best situationally. Um, that's the team that's probably going to end up with the victory um, on Saturday. So it should be an interesting game to watch. Um, we know the teams well, um, but it's the two best teams in the division that are playing for a championship for the right to advance and play um, meaningful football here in January. Nick, thanks a lot for joining us. Good luck this week. Thank you. Appreciate it. General Manager Nick Casario, we visited with him on Tuesday morning. Obviously, things change throughout the course of the week. That's the nature of podcasts and a week-to-week, game-week situation, especially this week. But let's get into it with Matt Taylor now, voice of the Colts, who I also talked with on Tuesday about how the Colts were dealing with the DeMar Hamlin situation. And I mean, the Colts today were supposed to have media availability with uh, some of their coordinators and assistant coaches. And, um, you know, they, they canceled that in, in solidarity, solidarity with uh, the Buffalo Bills. Um, as, you know, DeMar Hamlin now is certainly in the forefront of all of our minds. And, you know, I was like a lot of people last night watching the game as a spectator and, I didn't have it on to begin the game and, and turned it on actually about, I would guess maybe 10 minutes after that play occurred. And, you know, I was expecting to see, you know, first downs and passes and tackles. Instead I'm seeing, you know, players on knees and an ambulance on the field and just was, was shocked and uh, had never really seen anything like that. And, you know, so now it's all about, um, you know, as I think the football community coming together and, 
trying to put what's important at the forefront, and that's the well-being of a, of a young football player. And, I mean, we're not talking about ACL tears or shoulder injuries and rehab and surgery and things like that. I mean, we're talking about life and death here. And um, I think the NFL has handled it well. I thought ESPN last night from a broadcast standpoint handled it well. And um, I think, you know, these players are, are trying to compartmentalize, you know, being there for a player, a brother, um, you know, and, and just a great human being. And um, it's going to be hard for the Bills and Bengals and I think all of us um, to, to go back to football when you have such a um, huge uh, important thing occurring again when it's when it's life and death. I mean, football is a game, but this is so much bigger than all of that. Yeah, and they won't make up that game. We'll see how it affects everything moving forward. It, it does seem strange. I think that every day things could change. Any minute things could change, and we're hoping that the sun comes out and things change for the much better for Demar Hamlin. But it really seems strange to get ready for the games for everybody not directly involved with the game on Monday night. You know what I'm saying? With Texans and Colts scheduled to meet this week, and it feels a little strange to get hyped up for the game for the season finale with everything going on with this. No, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you almost feel insensitive, um, you know, talking about football because, right, I mean, the, the, you know, Houston and Indianapolis, these are not, you know, markets that were directly impacted by, you know, the, the ordeal last night. And so it is, you know, the NFL has already come out and said that there will be no changes to the NFL schedule in week 18. Um, it's, I think it's the right thing to do to not play that game, but to sit here and talk about playoff ramifications and, you know, things that need to happen in the off season for the Colts. I mean, it's, it's tough to sort of go there this, soon after the seriousness of last night. So you know, we're kind of treading water lightly around here, if you will. I know that's a bad metaphor, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think last night's uh, occurrence was so serious that you do kind of have to put things into perspective and put the, you know, upcoming off season um, for the Colts and Texans at bay for a couple of days before we figure out, you know, the well-being of DeMar Hamlin. Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, joining us on Texans Radio. Uh, Just football stuff for a second here, Matt, as it's been a difficult season for both these franchises. And I never thought in a billion years that after the opening day tie that both teams would be in this position, probably the Colts more than the Texans. I thought the Texans had a good chance to win a bunch of games, a handful or more of games that just hasn't happened but what are your thoughts on what the Indianapolis franchise has been through this year? Oh my gosh, how long's your show? Where do I yeah. start? Um, yeah, this it's it's been one of those years. I mean, I think on the disappointment meter, this is right up there. Considering, you know, in training camp, the conversation was, you know, can the Colts contend for the division? How many wins are they going to get? Is it going to be a nine-win team, a ten-win team, an eleven-win team? And here they are, Mark. They they've got all the markings of a four eleven and one team. I mean, um, no one saw this coming, and I think, you know, everybody either got hoodwinked or something because I mean, it was just um, it was a it was a roster on paper that you know could compete with just about anybody. And here towards the end of the season, they're not competing. And um, like I said, they've got all the signs of an under five hundred team. I mean, they they have the league worst. Minus 137 point differential um, since that 
terrible meltdown against the Minnesota Vikings a couple of weeks mm. ago where they gave up a 33-point lead. Since then, they've been outscored 97-16. to 16. Um, You know, they've lost four games this season by at least 23 points. They got routed the other day against the Giants. Offensively speaking, that's the root of the problem. I mean, defense is, is definitely uh, culpable, and they, they've had their fair share of moments, but the offense has just let the team down from start to finish on the season. Um, you know, they've switched quarterbacks five different times uh, when you factor in Sam Ellinger starting on Sunday against the uh, the Texans. Uh, Matt Ryan didn't work out like anybody thought he would. Uh, the offensive line has definitely taken a couple of steps steps back. So, no, I mean, that's a very short answer. I mean, we, we could sit here and talk for hours about all the things in Indianapolis that did not go according to plan this year. Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, joining us. Do you think quarterback is the main issue, though, that – Matt Ryan, despite the fact that he's got so many pelts on the wall, it just wasn't happening in this year of his career the way you needed it to. Is that where it all started, or is there other stuff involved as well, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's fair to say that's in the equation, along with the offensive line. I mean, the running game this year never flirted with its effectiveness as compared to last year in 2021 when Jonathan Taylor led the NFL in rushing. I mean, Taylor himself was banged up a couple of times this year. He missed a couple of games with an ankle. He never truly was his, you know, 100% explosive self like we saw so many times last season when he rushed for over 1,800 yards. Um, like I said, the offensive line, I mean, the Colts have given up 58 sacks on the season, and certainly the offensive line is, you know, they're going to share the blame in that. But I think just the immobility that the Colts have had this year uh, predominantly at the quarterback position has really helped that number get to where it is right now. I mean, Matt Ryan's not going to you know move around the pocket too much. Nick Foles didn't either in his two, uh, his two starts. Um, you know that's why they're going to Sam Ellinger here. So I think in the off season it's going to be about. I mean, they're going to be drafting at least six in the upcoming draft, and they're going to be in a position to get a quarterback. And so if the Colts do go that route in the draft, it's got to be, in my opinion a guy that has some mobility that has some escapability, you know, you don't have to go full Lamar Jackson mm-hmm. or, um, you know, Jalen hurts, but you need to have the escapability of a Josh Allen or a Joe Burrow and Patrick Mahomes and things like that. So um, yeah, this offense right here is really, really regressed. And since they fired Frank Reich, since they fired Marcus Brady, they've really had no identity. They've really had no identity in the passing game. The running game hasn't come to fruition either. So it's just been a team, unfortunately, just kind of uh, going week to week, trying to figure out who they are and what they are schematically, and then I think also culturally as well. Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, joining us. All right, give me two or three things or players or whatever you want to pick that are going well for the Colts, things that you think are assets even through the storm here. Yeah, I think on defense, I think collectively, like I said, they've had their moments, but they're breaking down here towards the end of the season. They're also breaking down, you know, late in games, fourth quarter defense has been a problem, but I think the one guy on that side of the ball that's really shined this year and he's been given an opportunity and man, he's run with it. And that's Zaire Franklin, their middle linebacker. Um, He's only a handful of tackles away from setting a franchise record for tackles in a single season. Um, And prior to this year, he was mainly a special teams guy, but, Shaq Leonard hasn't played for most of the season. I think he only played in three games and like 74 snaps on the year. So really Zaire has been the leader of that defense. 
He's been one of their biggest playmakers. He's stayed healthy. He stayed durable. Um, he's such a great guy off the field as well. And so from a personal standpoint, you're excited to see him have the season that he's had. He's under contract for next year as well. And I don't know how you take him off the field, even when Shaq Leonard comes back next year. Bobby Okereke is going to be a free agent. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think the Colts are in good hands there, but they might have to shuffle him around a little bit to make sure he's on the field. He's just been that good and that impactful for this defense. And then on special teams, you know, we talked about the offense, so I'll go special teams. Chase McLaughlin is having a really good season. You, you guys have Kami Fairbairn. Uh, the Colts have found a gym in, uh, in Chase McLaughlin, and unfortunately they, they didn't get him until week two because in week one, uh, Rodrigo mm -hmm. Blankenship missed that uh, field goal in overtime. Uh, the Colts made the move immediately to, to cut him and bring in Blankenship, who had spent time with the Colts back in 2019. Um, and he's just been so consistent this year. He's only missed six kicks. Uh, he's eight for 11 over 50. And that's what's been missing for the Colts on special teams, really since Adam Vinatieri retired. It's consistency and then having a threat to make long field goals, either in you know two-minute drills at the end of halves or late-in-game situations. Um, McLaughlin's done a nice job of, of staying consistent in the kicking game and giving the Colts some, some hope and uh, some confidence that he can make long field goals in clutch situations, which he's done more often than not this season. Matt, one more for you. AFC South Championship game, Jaguars, Titans, your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, first of all, just shocked that we're here. The fact that, mm -hmm. and that, that's what's so frustrating, I think, for the Colts fan base is that it's such a winnable division and it's so obtainable, and mm -hmm. the Titans are on this tailspin, on this death slide, and yet the Colts are just so far in the rearview mirror. I mean, they've been mathematically eliminated from the playoffs now for three weeks going into that uh, Charger game on Monday night a couple weeks back. So just not being able to take advantage of this division makes the 4-11-1 season that much you know, tough to come to grips with. But yeah, I don't know how you don't pick the Jaguars. I mean, the Titans right now are not healthy. They're not playing well. You know, Dobbs is going to play again at quarterback, and he's really inexperienced considering, you know, just the, the limited number of starts. I know he's been in the league for a while, but, you know, it's going to be a home game for Jacksonville. I just don't know how you don't pick the Jaguars in that situation. And give credit to them because they've just hung around and they've, you know, I, I hate to use this word, treaded water, but, you know, they haven't beat themselves. They don't turn the football over. And I think that should be a moral for, for the Colts and Texans. I mean, if you don't beat yourself because the Colts – you know, are 31st in the NFL in giveaways. You know, they, they, they have a hard time hanging on to the ball with fumbles, and Matt Ryan leads the NFL in interceptions. So how many more wins would the Colts have this year mm. if they didn't turn the football over with a high propensity? So credit to the Jaguars for just kind of playing even for most of those games, playing close games. You're going to win more than, than your fair share if you just hang on to the football and you don't beat yourself. That's what they've done this year, and I think they're going to win the AFC South. Matt, great visiting with you as always. Let's hope for the very best this week for DeMar Hamlin, the entire league. Thanks a lot for visiting, and we'll see you on Sunday. Thanks. You got it. Be good. Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, and that's it for the podcast today. Thanks to Dr. Kevin Linsman.
Nick Casario, Matt Taylor, and you can get all the other Texans podcasts wherever you got this one or wherever fine podcasts are available. Listen to Texans All Access weeknights at 6 on Sports Radio 610 throughout the course of the season. Now, we'll go dark after the Texans' last game until after the Super Bowl, so we'll start back up that Monday. Thanks for listening, everyone. Go Texans!